and welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. On this series, we explore the opportunities and challenges facing the Higher Education Business Office. I'm Liz Clark, Vice President for Policy and Research, and for this edition of Nakubo in Brief, I'm delighted to turn the conversation over to colleagues from EY Parthenon, an advisor to the global education sector. Pasha, what do you have in store for us today? Thank you, Liz. Uh, maybe just by way of quick intro, uh, Kasha Landi here, partner in our strategy and education uh, practice and part of the broader Ernst & Young organization. I am joined by two guests, uh, Michael Alexander and Haven Ladd. Uh, Michael has been serving as the ninth president of LaSalle University since 2007. Uh, LaSalle, uh, for those who don't know, is a private not-for-profit university located in Newton, Mass., so in the greater Boston area. Michael joined LaSalle after a successful corporate career, and before that, he worked at Smith College, Ohio State University, Harvard University. Um, Michael also serves on the board, uh, on New England Board of Higher Education and the board of NACU. Haven uh, is a partner in the strategy and education practice of EY Parthenon and has been with the firm uh, for over 20 years. Um, He works with colleges, universities, and policymakers across the country on issues related to growth, competitive positioning, differentiation, fiscal health, and institutional transformation. And Haven, I think it's fair to say that in the last decade, you've been uh, increasingly pulled into the affiliation and merger space in higher education and you've helped many uh, institutions develop and execute their affiliation strategies. So maybe we'll actually start with you, open up this conversation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what EY Parthenon has seen in this space? Why are higher, higher education institutions thinking about these issues? Great. Well, th- well thank you, Kasha. And, and, and I think that is a fair um, comment. We've been pulled into this space as opposed to pushing into it in any way, shape, or form. And I think the reason is, is that the pressures facing higher education in the United States have been building for a long time, not just through the pandemic, but for a long time before that. And and ultimately, these pressures are coming to head and creating strategic opportunities and challenges that university presidents are now having to grapple with. When we think at the highest level about enrollment in higher education, we've as we all know, have seen steady decline since 2010 or 11, which creates excess capacity in the industry. Our estimates are that right now, higher education nationwide has about 25% excess instructional capacity and not enough students. That creates an economic hardship and challenge for universities that will be increasingly hard to, to manage. Obviously, COVID has accelerated some of this, um, but our perspective is that COVID, the pandemic that followed, the push toward digital, the, the federal dollars, were just an accelerant of long-term trends. They were not a transformative uh, move on its own. And the last thing I'll just say in terms of context is it has gotten harder. We know it's gotten harder to manage universities. When we look at the first sort of 10 years of, of the first decade of the 2000s, there were about 55 institutions that, that closed in, the, in that first period. In the most recent 10 years, there's been over 250. So a lot of institutions are closing. Nobody wants to close a college. Let's just start with that. We know students, faculty, presidents, boards of trustees do not want to close them. 
So as a result, we actually see more and more colleges and universities turning toward mergers or collaborations as an alternative, as a strategic way to survive and thrive, either rather than closing or because they think they can get stronger by coming together. As we know, mergers are pretty rare. But in the first decade of this century, we saw about 40 of them. In the most recent decades, or 2011 to today, we've seen over 150 of them. Our expectations are that there will be more going forward, not fewer. But I don't think we have the crystal ball to say how many of them, because it really depends on the model. So that's our, our brief perspective. Super helpful to have that context, Haven. And very good point about affiliations and mergers being preferred, obviously, to the closure alternative. Michael, what's your perspective on this? You've been a university president now for 16 years, so you've seen a lot of evolution in the higher education landscape. But when it comes to affiliations, what kinds of models have you seen and what do you see as advantages, disadvantages of those models? Thank you, Kasha, and thank you, Haven, for setting the landscape. I, you know, you, you mentioned that nobody wants to close a college. Well, I think it starts out that nobody wants to do anything that would diminish the legacy or, or reputation or brand or positioning of a college. And particularly those who have been affiliated with a long time, people have strong emotional attachments to institutions, to colleges and universities. That causes them to interact and think about them differently than they might other institutions or other organizations. So I think if you go back a ways, yeah, it was very difficult to get people to consider mergers, acquisitions, um, creative affiliations, because they felt that it would dilute uh, their legacy, that they might lose some visibility, that the, the alumni and the staff and the students wouldn't, wouldn't feel like they were attached to the same, the institution that they know and love. That is changing. Uh, as you as you mentioned, the data supports it is changing, but it's been gradual. And it was particularly gradual leading up until the pandemic. So just like the the pandemic may have been an accelerator for some of the changes in the landscape, particularly in the, the demographics and the fact that there are just fewer traditional age students to go around with the same number of institutions, may prove to be an accelerator with regard to affiliations and mergers and acquisitions as well. So you see now more institutions looking for partnerships, starting with shared services kinds of um, situations where where they really just combine to reduce costs together. Turns out that's very hard to do. It's complicated. It happens. There are institutions making it happen, but it's it's very difficult. I think today we don't want to talk about that. I think we want to talk about about the situations where they go beyond that to really join forces in some creative way by becoming one institution, by um, contributing their assets one from another, or both contributing assets to a third party in a way that causes them to be joined at the hip. The objectives are the same. as a, They start out to be the same as a shared uh, services kind of organization in that, in that they're trying to spread enrollments and operations across an, a fixed asset base and get economies of scale by working together and therefore lower lower the per student cost that each of them has and, and be able to pass it on to students. But I think where you have a kind of uh, transaction that results in a change of control, it turns out to be much easier to achieve those objectives because you have someone who can, who can make a decision to say, okay, we're going to put 
our IT services together. We're, we're going to do uh, a lot of the administrative things together, save money or uh, reduce our hours or improve the services that we provide to students without raising our costs. This, uh, this applies to physical assets as well. If you join to two organizations, maybe you don't need all those physical assets. So you can, you can monetize some of those assets and therefore operate the services to the students from both institutions across a, a relatively small or fixed asset base. What happens is you have overcapacity, like what Haven described, is that you, you have these fixed costs, but you don't have enough revenues to cover those fixed costs uh, because everybody's fighting for the same students. And we just have to recognize that we're in a down market for students. It's been going in New England and the middle, Midwest has been going on since 2011. It's going to be more precipitous, as we know, starting in 2026, just three years from now. And that's eventually going to reach the rest of the country, too. The time to prepare for that is now. And I think we're starting to see an attitude among institutions and their trustees to be more open-minded about these kinds of transactions. I think that point around the, the market getting worse uh, before it gets better is an important one to remember. It's relatively easy to forecast the number of high school graduates that are coming out because we know they're in school already, and, and we can all see the demographic trends, but the, the impact of those will be enormous on higher ed. Between 2026 and 2036, just one decade, there'll be over 10% fewer high school graduates. In 2036, if you look around, one in 10 students who would otherwise be ready to go to college is not there. They were not born. They're not enrolled in, in high school. And it feels to us that, that uh, Michael, to your point, many colleges and universities aren't really grappling with that you know, oncoming reality, which is, which is well known. And to put that in context, uh, between just before 2019, the fall of 2019, right before COVID, and, and last fall, fall of 2022, I think we lost about 1.7 million students in higher education. Locally, and, and you know, as a private institution in Massachusetts, I look at our local you know, competitive environment, we lost 16,000 students in private institutions in Massachusetts alone. That's like eight institutions our size just going away. And it's not just the decline in 18-year-olds. In that is that is happening and going to get worse and then stay bad for a long time compared to where it is now. But that's exacerbated by the fact that some percentage of students learned about online and, and were comfortable with it and are going to all online kinds of institutions. So there, there has an increase enrollment in, in, in entirely online programs, which takes away from tradition, students going to traditional institutions like, like LaSalle. In addition to that, more recently, and coming out of COVID, that with the labor market being what it is, there are a certain percentage of 18-year-olds are saying, hey, why do I have to stretch to pay for college when I can go get a job, get a car, rent an apartment, or, or maybe better take the money home to my family who's still suffering from COVID? And so a certain percentage of students have decided to put off going to college. As we know, if they put it off too long, a lot of them just won't ever go. Uh, again, to give you an example, in the fall of 2022, only 60% of the high school graduates in Massachusetts went on to college. Then that percentage is normally well over 70%. That's a huge decline. And most of that is because they're going into the labor market. So those three factors taken together, the labor market, the online opportunities, and the decline in 18-year-olds have a geometric effect that most college institutions are 
are really going to be stressed by the fact that there's just a few, uh, you know fewer students to go around. That's what I mean by we're in a declining market. So from from what you are both describing, it is almost sounding to me like a, a merger or an affiliation or a partnership should be part of any college's strategic consideration set, not sort of something a college might look at as a last resort. But I, would you agree with that? And I also want to push a little bit more on this question of, Michael, have you seen anything out there? Or even if you haven't seen it, have you contemplated a model that that you think might be successful uh, and be of benefit, not just to the institution, but also to the students? So with regard to your first question, I'm not sure everybody, not sure everybody would agree that almost every uh, institution needs to look at that, but I would. I agree with it. Uh, I, I think any institution that doesn't have a huge endowment or the full faith and credit of, of a state that's in good financial condition has to look at this. And you see it happening that even in state institutions, you know, the, the state state universities in Pennsylvania merging, the community colleges in Connecticut merging, the Georgia State universities already did it. And that's moving into the, to the private college world, uh, as you well know. And uh, so, yes, I believe... Every institution like LaSalle that doesn't have a huge endowment has, you know, has a fixed asset base that's based on residence halls and dining halls and classrooms, you know, that that may be hard to fill in the future, has to consider uh, these kinds of relationships. With regard to your second, as we said, there's, there's shared services, there's mergers and acquisitions. And I think we all recognize now there's no mergers of equals, right? It's really an acquisition, one way or another, it's a, it turns out to be an acquisition. There are creative things like what, you know, St. Benedict's and St. John's in Minnesota are doing, where they kind of merge their academic operations, but not necessarily everything. But they, they've recently gone to one president for the two institutions, for example. So there, there are a lot of ways, but the one that, that I think holds promise, and there are not many examples of it, but some, is where multiple institutions join forces under one umbrella, or let's say under the common control of a holding company, they each keep their own identities, their own names, their own accreditation, their own assets and liabilities. They each are audited and provide, you know, audited financial statements each year. They each have their own trustees. But they, they, they are in common control of this holding company where you then have the holding company providing a lot of the centralized administrative services, so you can, you can oh, with three, four, or five institutions joining forces this way, really significantly reduce your costs. You can reduce your costs a, a lot, and I think you can show, there are models that can show you that. And over time, those institutions could rationalize their academic offerings so that each one of them could concentrate on the programs, the ones that exist or new ones that, that are areas of demand for students and for employers where they're already strong, not trying to offer 40-some majors, but reduce that to the ones that they're most suited to supply. And other ones in this group under the umbrella could have complementary programs. It also allow them to share certain courses that, that are under-enrolled across institutions and, and save money that way. So I think there's, it, under that kind of idea, there's a, a substantial opportunity. So there, there are examples. TCS out of Chicago is a central holding company that has multiple institutions under it that are spread across the country. Ones that before they become part of that group were struggling and now uh, seem to have stabilized. 
national university out of California kind of has that, that, that model. Others are trying to, to do it. The uh, recent announcement of Otterbein College in Ohio and Antioch University, which has five graduate schools around the country, are, are looking at having a governance model that's like that. I think there are some of those examples out there. In a way, LaSalle University has that model because we have a holding company called LaSalle Inc. that is the sole member of LaSalle University Inc. and LaSalle Village Inc., a continuing care retirement community. So I'm the CEO, the president CEO of both organizations. We have common management, common services. We save a lot of money. Our LaSalle Village saves a lot of money and LaSalle University makes money from those, from those arrangements. So um, there's where we're not even in the same business and we save money. Imagine if we were in the same business. So I would envision, you know, um, and hope that we could get to the to a place where there might be LaSalle University, LaSalle Village, and two, three other other institutions of higher education under this same umbrella where the, the cost savings could be significant and where the rationalization of the academic programs could be substantial. Michael, that's a really interesting uh, model, and obviously we've seen some of that type of merger and consolidation in the not-for-profit healthcare system as regional and, and national hospitals have come together with different brands under a single umbrella. You know, in our experience working across higher ed, uh, we have to admit, these things are really hard, and I think one of the biggest uh, risks that faces you know many colleges comes back to your core comment at the beginning that Colleges don't want to see their reputation or influence or impact go down. And we've we've worked a lot of boards and a lot of leadership teams who are reluctant to pursue such things because they fear that the deal may not close. And if something is, rele- is released publicly and doesn't close, students will not come, faculty will quit in droves, fundraising will dry up, and ultimately they might have done some real risk or disservice to their own institution, even by pursuing something like this. So. Do you have any sense of, of how to maybe manage or overcome some of those risks and actually get higher ed to, to think more creatively about some of these opportunities? On the one hand, I think those risks are real, and uh, you can't totally get away. If you go down this road, especially if it becomes public knowledge that you're doing it uh, with, a, with a particular institution or set of institutions and it doesn't close, yeah, I think there's, there is risk involved with that. We went through the process of, trying to acquire Mount Ida College, we came very close. I mean, literally 11 hours, 59 minutes, and you know, trustees of the other organization backed out. In that case, we were the acquirer. And it still it still had negative effects for us because it was because Mount Ida closed so suddenly and, and created such an uproar in New England that uh, it reflected uh, negatively on us, I think, to be honest. But we learned a lot from it, too. So uh, in order to ask, answer your question about how to mitigate those risks, one is start early. You know, if you're, I think you have to get into these conversations before you are really in serious jeopardy. You know, if you're almost out of cash, it's going to be too late. You're, you know, it's not going to work with anybody. But if you're even on the path to running out of cash years down the line, it's, it, you know, it's a little bit late. So you want to get in there while, while, you, while your assets are secure, even – Maybe you still you have deficits, but if you have a lot of net assets, hidden assets like real estate, uh, before you start to dissipate those or uh, call upon those to cover operating losses, that's the time to do it. And because if it doesn't happen and you're in that position, you still have time and resources to recover. 
or um, or and people will believe that that um, that you haven't been uh, significantly injured by it. Um, I, another way to mitigate it, I think that I I haven't seen enough of is um, if you get in these conversations, try and get the trustees of each institution talking directly with each other. That often gets put off too long. That's where some of the the breakdowns happen at the trustee level. We spend a lot of time building building trust between presidents, between senior management teams, uh, understanding of cultures are compatible. Then you get to the trustees, and they uh, they don't have you know they haven't built any any relationship, any loyalty, any any attraction to each other, and it gets hard hard to complete the process. So um, so those would be my two things: start early and get the trustees talking directly and getting to know each other early on. Michael, maybe just one more question for you. And going back to this concept that you raised, really interesting concept of an umbrella affiliation. What in your mind are examples from like a characteristics perspective of institutions that could fit well into, into a concept like that? And I imagine it's a wide range, but, uh, and you started going down this path, but maybe some characteristics you can mention here. And I'll, I'll, just load load this question up, but for example, institutions with different missions, religious-based institutions or institutions that are not proximate to each other, how, how does that all fit or not fit uh, into this into this concept? So honestly, I'm not sure, but uh, but I thought about it a lot. Um, I think that it's possible, for instance, like TCS, to have institutions that are not geographically proximate. However, I'm pretty sure it would be helpful if they were, right? If the institutions are all, you know, Catholic or all secular, I think it makes it easier. But I'm not sure it's necessary because each one is keeping its own identity, its own its own legacy. Uh, you're, you're, under this idea, you're not cross-collateralizing the assets and liabilities. So each one stands on its own, its own footing. I, I think the benefits you get of partnering with each other on both the administrative cost side and ultimately differentiating yourself on the academic side is is not something that would be constrained by culture or by mission. I could be wrong about that, though. That's why I say I'm not sure. But it seems to me it wouldn't necessarily be true. We do partner with Catholic institutions. We're a very you know secular institution. We Catholic partner with Catholic institutions for uh, course, sharing courses, uh, for cross-registration, for um, supporting each other with uh, security issues. So why couldn't it be broader than that? Uh, I, th- I, think it, I think it could be. But nevertheless, if you have institutions that are similar, uh, say going back to LaSalle and Mount Ida, we're similar in a lot of ways, but that have strengthened programs that are complementary. If you're exactly the same, it might be hard, right? But in that case, Mount Ida had certain programs that where they were strong in that we weren't. We had ones that we were strong in and they weren't. And that I, I really think that would have worked uh, really well if we'd been able to close that deal. And you think that. So uh, Philadelphia uh, University and, uh, and Thomas Jefferson would be an example of that. They, are to- they were totally complementary, good geographical location, totally different missions. And I think that's one of the one of the acquisitions that have worked out really well, as far as I can tell. It wasn't a religious difference, but but mission was different, uh, programs different. They, they were more complementary than 
compatible. And I think, I think that probably helped them. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, some of those conversations that you mentioned helpful to start early would be critical here in, in terms of establishing a common vision and a common strategy. Haven, are there any other characteristics or criteria that come to mind for you before we move to our final question? That is the range. And I, I certainly agree strongly with Michael that the book has not been written on this. So I, I do think as university leaders and presidents think about and boards think about these opportunities, that they won't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily be constrained by the exact type of institution, because over time, we'll see more of these different partnerships that evolve in different ways. Some might be a collection all in one geographic area where students are actually able to move campus to campus. Others might be collections across urban cores where students could spend a semester in New York, a semester in L.A., a semester in Paris, a semester in Miami. Others may be around, you know, programmatic, you know, differentiation. So I don't think, you know, at this point in the market, we should sort of constrain ourselves to saying there's one ideal type of strategic affiliation relationship or or network. We need to be open-minded to all of those and, and figure out what is right for the institution in question. I agree with that. I think leaders, administrators, and trustees need to be open-minded and willing to consider almost anything. They need to listen and listen with an open mind and, and set aside their emotional attachments that may cloud their thinking in this area. I think we've all seen that and that, that something is going to have to change. And the, the example of what I mean is I, I really think for institu- many institutions that don't have huge resources, huge endowments that are going to have to do these kind of things, you're going to have, these institutions are going to have to get comfortable with relinquishing some amount of control of governance control, or maybe all governance control, but still to be able to achieve their missions and their goals. I think that's possible, but it's going to take a realization that you're not going to get to make all the decisions in the future like you have been so far. So maybe just building on what you said and then closing out, Haven, anything else you'd add in terms of what you see as the future of higher education? What's next in this area of partnerships? Well, I think that's another case where the book probably hasn't been written. You know, we, don't know, we don't know the final end state, but there are some things we do know. We do know or we do believe that higher education as an industry in the U.S. will get more challenging in the years to come rather than less challenging. And, and what they'll do likely is force leadership teams and boards of directors to open their minds to different opportunities about how to compete in that landscape. And our hope or expectation for the future is that in the years to come, these conversations about potential affiliations, about mergers, become a potential strategic dialogue that happens between boards and, and management teams, and, and not as a reaction to potentially closing, but as a way to think about further differentiating, further growing, as a way to develop the success and reputation of, of individual institutions. So we expect more of this activity. How much more, over what time frame, what type of institutions is um, very much a sort of anyone's guess at this point. Well, I want to thank all of you. May we turn it back to Liz. Thank you so much, Haven, Kasha, Michael. This has been a somewhat sobering but incredibly important conversation, raising questions, as you discussed, for all institutions, but particularly smaller, less resourced uh, independent colleges and regional public colleges as well. 
We're certainly entering a new era when the words acquisitions and holding company are used in a conversation about strategic decision-making for colleges and universities. Uh, Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. And as a reminder, you can find resources from this episode and others on the Nakubo in Brief webpage at nakubo.org.